In our gospel reading for today, uh, Jesus speaks to his Jewish audience about how they ought to understand and keep the law. Now we might see this as the opening rounds of an ongoing discussion as later generations of disciples would continue to figure out what place that law had in the movement of Jesus' followers. Paul's mission to the Gentiles will mark a significant shift in that conversation, creating a crisis big enough to call a conference in Jerusalem. But even here, when the movement was entirely Jewish, we see questions arising about how the law should be kept now that the Messiah had come. So I invite you to please keep that in mind, that this is sort of the opening con- beginnings of that conversation um, as, um, well, a conversation we're still having all these centuries later. I recently made the trip from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to Elkhart, Indiana, 600 miles. That's 10 hours, averaging 60 miles an hour. But who really goes 60 miles an hour? (laughs) In the mind of the experienced driver, there's this constant calculation taking place over those 600 miles. And the variables include gas mileage, the presence or absence of state troopers, one's tolerance for boredom, especially when traveling on the Ohio Turnpike, one's desire to get the trip over with, and then all sorts of other things unique to each driver. And part of that calculation is, of course, just how many miles over the speed limit you have to go in order to draw the attention of those aforementioned troopers. Is it 10, 12? I won't tell you how many hours it took me to get to Elkhart. But I will admit to doing an awful lot of calculating along the way. I mean, how close do I need to be to the letter of the law, i.e. 65 miles per hour, to be counted as obedient and so not get a ticket? And that's the trouble with the law, right? I mean, whether it's the law laid down by mom and dad or the law established by the local, state, or federal government or the law that was handed down from God through Moses to the people, the law lends itself to calculation. That's not the law's fault, of course. If we assume that the law was established for our own good, then it would make sense to simply follow it to the letter. But even if we assume that the law was established for our own good, for the good of society, there's this almost immediate temptation to start figuring out just how close we have to be to the exact demands of the law in order to be considered obedient. The speed limit's clearly posted. The distance from Lancaster to Elkhart does not change from one day to the next. It will take 10 hours traveling at the posted speed limits across three states. Add a little more for a stop or two, 10 hours. But 10 hours is so long. And I can't make the distance shorter by wishing it. And so I start calculating. 72? 75? 80? Uh, 80 is excessive. A little scary, dangerous. But it's fast but expensive if I get caught. So 75, the law invites us to such calculations. No, actually, that's not true. The law tells us what's allowed, what is presumably best for all concerned. The law does not invite us to calculate ways to get around it. That's human nature. That's what that is. The same human nature that was so easily convinced to go ahead and sneak a bite of that forbidden fruit, hoping that God was too busy elsewhere to notice. Now, in my formative years, and I suspect I'm not alone in this, uh, I was taught to consider myself as better than the Jews. I was a Christian, 
and Christians were better than Jews. The Jews were legalistic. Christians were saved by grace. Jews were all bound up with trying to save themselves by keeping the law. Christians knew themselves to be incapable of saving ourselves and instead leaned on the everlasting arms. Jews were the people that were left behind by God when they refused to follow Jesus. We were the people called in to replace them, the strangers welcomed to the feasts when the ones who'd been invited failed to show up, and so on. And the epitome of that law-bound Jew was the Pharisee, the self-righteous Pharisee. Jesus was the good guy. The Pharisee was the bad guy. Jesus and his disciples wore white hats. Pharisees and their pals, the scribes, wore black hats. The Pharisee was a whitewashed tomb, all bright and shiny on the outside, but dead within. Jesus was the bright and morning star, pure as the driven snow, the lamb without blemish, and so on. Now, I still believe all those things about Jesus, but I don't believe any of that stuff that I was told about the Jews and the Pharisees in particular. Jesus doesn't need me or any of us to create some evil counterpart in order to, for his light to shine more brightly. Jesus needs no Lex Luthor, no Cylon number six, no nemesis or archenemy to reveal the truth of who he is. And neither do we Christians need some straw enemy, some boogeyman against which to measure our righteousness. So I'd invite us to lay all that old stuff we learned about the Pharisees aside. Let's put it away and let's let Jesus be Jesus on his own strength without needing any stage prop bad guys to make him seem more perfect. Because it doesn't take a Pharisee to treat the law as if it's one's own personal scorecard or one's own personal righteousness thermometer. We all do it. Those of us who spend much of our time calculating how much less than perfect we can be and still get into heaven, and those of us who are surprised and appalled that the rest of us do such calculating. We all treat the law as if it were designed to separate the sheep from the goats. And then some of us try to work the angles, being obedient enough to stand on the right side, but not so obedient as to be an inconvenience, and others of us try to keep every last jot and tittle, whether as a way of keeping score or of saving ourselves or because we fear the consequences. You don't need to be a Pharisee to be confounded over and over again by the plain fact of the law, something there is about a law that tempts us to either flout it or to worship it or to do both at the same time. And so it can be a bit confusing when we hear Jesus tell his friends that he did not come to abolish the law, that he came to fulfill it. One would think that Jesus would recognize the trouble caused by the law, whether that trouble was in the form of a rigid and lifeless legalism or a cynical figuring the risks against the gains, and so come to throw it aside or declare it null and void. Here again, my old Sunday school lessons come to mind, contrasting the Jews as people trying to save themselves by keeping the law and Christians who didn't need the law because we've been saved by grace. With that background, it's, it's natural, I think, for us to assume that the first thing Jesus would do would be to abolish those old laws and institute a new regime of grace and right belief. But here we have Jesus saying that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We hear him say that unless we are more righteous, better keepers of the law than the scribes and Pharisees, we won't enter into God's reign. So it sounds like Jesus is calling us to be sort of super Pharisees, Super scribes, super law-abiding citizens of God's kingdom. And what's up with that? And then, to top it off, Jesus goes and raises the bar. All of that, you have heard it said, but I say, stuff that keeps, makes the keeping of the law seem even more impossible. 
Jesus effectively patches all the holes that we human beings have either found or created in the law, the results of generations of careful calculation about just how close we need to be to the goal in order to still get the reward. No loopholes, Jesus says. In fact, if you really keep the law, you'll go beyond what's written, beyond the letter, and begin to keep the law according to the Spirit. Now notice that in this text, the laws that Jesus is addressing have to do with how we relate to and love other human beings. Um, at later points in the Gospels, he'll address laws having to do with diet and laws having to do with property. But here in the sermon, his interest is in how his followers ought to behave toward and treat others. So again, please keep that in mind as we proceed. And please excuse my rather sloppy use of the word law, uh, which is a much too big word for what is really here, um, a subset of that larger body of laws given to and through Moses. What Jesus is up to here, I think, is calling his disciples, all of them Jews, remember, um, to move beyond the calculating and the setting in stone and consider instead what it truly means to be absolutely in love with God and absolutely grateful for God's faithfulness and absolutely committed to learning how to walk in that love and in light of that faithfulness. A reframing, in other words, seeing the law not as a measuring stick or as a roadblock that we somehow have to get around, but instead as a gift intended to show us what it means to be a member of God's reign, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and what it looks like to live in justice and peace with everyone around us. And so it's not enough to say, well, I've never murdered anybody. And so assume you're living like a member of God's own people. I mean, it's a good thing that you haven't murdered anybody, don't get me wrong, and you do get credit for that. But go past that, think past that, imagine yourself Past that, Jesus says, stop acting in anger toward your sisters and brothers. Stop insulting them. Don't despise your sisters and brothers and consider them less than you. Don't be, pretend to be all holy and go to the altars if your hands are clean, if you have an unresolved conflict with a sister or brother. Forgive and be forgiven. Stop all the fake piety, the superficial righteousness. That's whitewashed tomb behavior. Don't stop at not killing your sister and brother. Go beyond the letter of the law and find out what it means to actually love your sister and brother as God loves you. It's not enough to say, I have not committed adultery, and assume that you can check sexual sin off the list. Again, it's a good thing that you haven't been unfaithful to your spouse. Way to go. But don't stop there. Guard your mind against lustful thoughts. Be just as unwilling to, to think impure thoughts as you would to have sex with your neighbor's husband or wife. If you can't keep your eye from wandering, cut it out. If you can't keep your hand from touching what's forbidden, cut it off. Better to have one eye and one hand than to go to hell. Don't stop at not committing adultery. Go beyond the letter of the law and find out what it means to actually live in love with your family and your community. It's not enough to say, I will divorce my wife in the proper legal manner, and so assume that you're living like a member of God's reign. Remember, in those days, men had all the power. Sort of, well, some things never change. In those days, men had all the power. Um, all a man needed to do to divorce his wife was to follow the law. There was no requirement on his part to explain or justify his decision. Perhaps he found somebody he liked better, or perhaps his wife could not bear children. Uh, or was past childbearing. The husband needed no justification, just a simple matter of 
completing the necessary paperwork, as it were. And the consequences for the wife in that culture, in that time, were devastating, leaving her, vul leaving her vulnerable and without support in a culture in which men were the property holders and women were too often treated like property. Um, so the woman's only hope for any kind of um, reasonably secure life would be to remarry. But Jesus calls his disciples to a higher standard. Jesus calls his disciples to consider not only their own best interests, but the interests of their wives. Divorce may be legal, but it does not release the husband from his obligation toward his wife. So don't stop at following the proper procedure when divorcing your wife. Go beyond the letter of the law and learn what it means to keep your promises in the community of God's people. Learn what it means to love even that one who the law says you don't need to love any longer. And again, it's not enough to say, I will not swear falsely, but will keep my vows to God and assume that you have met your obligations as a disciple. It's a good thing to keep your vows and to hold your promises, but imagine what it would be like to have no need to make vows or to make promises because everyone around you knew that if you said you would do something, you would do that thing. No need to cross your heart and hope to die. No need to sign on the dotted line. No need to warn about penalties for false swearing. No need even for handshakes. Just, I will do this thing, and everyone knows it will be done. Imagine a community in which a simple yes assured a commitment, and a simple no does the same. That's the kind of community Christ is creating, a post-promise society. So don't stop at keeping your promises. Go beyond the letter of the law and learn what it means to be truthful in the kingdom of God. And moving beyond our text for today, we hear Jesus telling his disciples that it's not enough to exact vengeance justly, to stick to an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Instead, his disciples don't retaliate at all. They turn the other cheek. They give their coats when asked for a cloak. They go the second mile and the third mile. They give freely to anyone who asks of them and are generous in lending their own things. And again, it's not enough to love your neighbors. Jesus' disciples must love their neighbors and their enemies, too. They are to pray for those who persecute them. Anybody can love somebody who loves them in return, even the tax collectors who are the really bad guys. Even the tax collectors do that. And don't just welcome your friends. Even the Gentiles do that. Be perfect, just as God is perfect. And we can hear the collective gasp all these centuries later. Be perfect, just as God is perfect. A reframing indeed. Rather than understanding the law as the end point, the measure to be reached, the limit to be met, Jesus suggests that the law is just the beginning. It's the starting point. The true end, the true goal, the true measure is perfection. The true measure is God. Rather than patting themselves on the back for keeping to the letter of the law or calculating just how far from perfection they can be and still make the cut, the followers of Jesus are called to see that letter of the law as the baseline, the starting point from which they are to grow into greater faithfulness and to keep on growing until they are perfect, until they resemble God, until they're perfect. And it's that last line, the one about being perfect as God is perfect, that signals, I think, that what Jesus is not doing here is laying another set of rules on the backs of his followers. He's not drafting an appendix to the law of Moses. He's not handing his disciples yet another scorecard to go along with the first, another way of measuring up. I think what he's telling his disciples is that being a follower of Jesus, being a citizen of his kingdom, 
It's about learning to love more fully, more gracefully, more extravagantly. It's, it's about learning to think more clearly, to behave more compassionately, and welcome more completely. It means not being bound by the law, or being in awe of the law, or getting all caught up in finding loopholes or lowest common denominators in the law, but instead seeing it as the foundation upon which a community can be formed, a community whose best self is revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. Being a follower of Jesus means not being satisfied with doing the minimum, even when that minimum is daunting and even impossible to do. It means looking beyond that foundation, beyond that starting point, and imagining a community, imagining a world which functions according to the spirit of the law, that same spirit whose breath filled Jesus at his baptism, the same spirit who's been given to us, and with the goal being nothing less than perfection, nothing less than becoming like God. I think we can safely assume that this is more of a journey than a single moment in time. What Jesus calls us to is a new way of being, a new way of walking, and one that it'll take us from here to eternity to accomplish. It might have seemed off-putting, maybe even burdensome, but with all that you have heard it said, but I say, what might have seemed like making an impossible thing even more impossible is instead, I think, a reconfiguration of our relationship to the law, a reframing that paradoxically both raises the bar and lightens the burden. It raises the bar by making clear that God's intentions for us begin with the law. They don't end with it. So it's not enough to do the things the law tells us to do and to not do the things the law tells us not to do. Instead, we see the law and we discern its intention. And from there, we see the next logical, loving step along the way, a step that takes us from legalism to freedom, from calculation to freedom, from figuring the angles to welcoming the angels. We see that beyond the commandment not to murder, there's this whole host of other things that we need to attend to, a whole host of other ways that our behavior can damage and destroy other people. And we hear Jesus calling us to learn how to avoid those things, resist those things, and how to do other things for the sake of learning how to love like God loves. And we see that beyond the commandment to avoid adultery, there's a whole host of behaviors that demean and damage our sisters and brothers, a whole host of opportunities we have to practice loving each other without any ulterior motives or hidden agendas, but with a love that is free and pure and comes more and more to resemble God's love for us. Out beyond the command to follow the proper procedures when divorcing a spouse, we see a higher calling to care for one another in ways that transcend the legal, the proper, the status quo. We hear an invitation to attend to the consequences of our breaking the relationship, the consequences of our own breaking, and to remember that love is never as simple as something written on a piece of paper. And so learning perhaps painfully what it means to learn how to love beyond ourselves just as God loves us. And out beyond the commandment to keep our promises and vows, we see a new way of being a community, one in which honesty is the norm. So much so that a simple yes is enough, a simple no is enough. And there's no need for solemn vows or legal documents or any of the proof that we mean what we say. We hear an invitation toward building a community that's bounded by a truth that's tempered only by love. And so learn what it means to be faithful and to love as God is faithful and as God loves. So Jesus raises the bar. He calls his followers to something beyond the law, to see the letter of the law as the entry point, the spirit of the law as the guide, with perfection as the goal. But, or so it seems to me, Jesus also lightens the burden 
And I'll admit that this may be more wishful thinking on my part, um, just another kind of calculation perhaps designed to get me out from under something heavy. So I'm going to go ahead and give it a try, and you can decide if I'm close to something true. I think Jesus lightens the burden by freeing us from the chains that we have this habit of putting on whenever we think about our relationship to the law, the chains of rigid and fearful obedience, the chains of frantic and incessant calculation, the chains of legalism and a worship of the written word, the chains of cheap grace and license. Our relationship to the law does not need to be so constricting, and we need not be so knee-jerk in our reactions to it. Instead, we can see it as the gift it is, a gift designed to get us started along the path toward God, the path toward righteousness, the path toward salvation. By breaking it open for us, by taking the law into his own hands, as it were, Jesus calls us to wrestle with the law, to play with the law, to work with the law, but always with an eye toward growing in love. Jesus does not abolish the law, but he does demystify it. He makes clear that the law is not an impossible barrier that stands between us and salvation. It's instead a starting point for the walk toward that salvation, the beginning of our journey, rather than the journey's end. In place of our too often restricted vision of the law, Jesus offers us an expansive vision, one that can, I hope, spark our imaginations and, and so call us to move toward a fuller, more faithful embodiment of our commitment to Christ. The letter's the starting point. Jesus calls us toward the Spirit, and from there on toward God's own perfection. May God make it so. Amen.